Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Women's running, running, running. Women's running stories. You are listening to a very special episode of Hear Her Sports with Women's Running Stories. I am the host of Hear Her Sports, Elizabeth Emery, and I'm here today with the host of Women's Running Stories, Cherie Turner. Well, hello, Cherie. Hey, Elizabeth. I'm so excited for this collaborative episode. We have invited on Jay Grunke of The Balanced Runner. She is a Feldenkrais practitioner who focuses on running form. And you and I have both worked with Jay, and we have shared lots and lots of conversations about this work. And we're just so curious to talk to her more about what she does and explain Feldenkrais a little bit more because it can feel a little unusual. It did for me. It was a bit of a leap of faith. And I know you've had some similar experiences. So we were just really excited to talk to her more and have her explain more about the work she does. Exactly. Feldenkrais for me was very mysterious. And Jay does an incredible job describing a little bit more about what's going on in the work that she does and what's happening in the brain. But I'm sure listeners will have more questions and they can find all the information they need about Jay, where to reach her, et cetera, in each of our show notes. But for now, let's just get started and meet Jay. Welcome, Jay, to our special podcast that Elizabeth and I are doing together. We've we have never done this before for our podcast, so we're super excited. Cool. Well, I'm thrilled to be part of it. Well, yeah, welcome. And we are super excited because both Cherie and I have been doing the lessons and uh, have really enjoyed it. I mean, enjoy isn't quite the word, so we're interested in learning more, basically. And we thought we would just start out maybe, you know, like talking about what actually Feldenkrais is and what the method is and sort of like what's what's going on? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, and people often have that question coming in and then they have it again a year later and then they have it again. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> we need to keep circling back to this. So um, the Feldenkrais method of movement education, or some people say somatic education, was developed by Moshe Feldenkrais, who was a scientist and engineer and physicist and uh, born in Ukraine in 1914 and um, died, I think, in Israel um, in the 80s. Uh, and he has a long and e extremely colorful story but um, and a lot of scientific accomplishments. But he uh, became fascinated, <laughs> fascinated with why he couldn't walk, why his knee hurt so much. And uh, that led him down a path of realizing that the, the medical options on offer for a person who had pain or injury weren't that great. Well, we'll say pain. If you have a wound, then of course. But um, And a quest to 
be able to use both of his legs normally again. And um, so he, he basically uh, ended up developing a method of motor learning that uses the process that we use from birth in order to learn to move to function, move and function in the world and gives us a way to apply that process at any age to improve how we move and function. And so what's really different about that from other methods of improving your movement or your posture, or in this case, your running form, is that uh, it improves kind of fundamentally what you know about yourself, the stimuli you take in from the environment and how you choose to respond to them so that you just move better without having to think about it. It lets you learn with the part of your brain that coordinates your movement, even when you're thinking about other things. So that's the overview. And that means that when you you use this method to improve your running, you're going to do things that um, probably you've never done before as a runner that um, are a bit outside the box for uh, running technique education, not drills, um, but something that is more like um, what we see babies do when they learn how to roll over and crawl and do that really phenomenal learning all on their own without instruction or guidance. And uh, the, the results can be equally as phenomenal as what you accomplished as a baby. So what happens, what, like basically what goes awry between when you're a baby and you've learned all those things in a really phenomenal way to now when, you know, you're buggered up and you have knee issues? <laughs> um, yeah, so first, we don't always manage to learn everything that we need. Um, things get skipped, things get missed, things get mislearned, even as babies. And, you know, we see there are different babies move differently, develop differently. And nowadays that's even perhaps more true than ever. So yeah, things get missed. And then we are in fact learning our whole lives. So, you know, that was the kind of huge discovery about neuroplasticity that we're still able, that that old thing about you kind of stop learning after age 40 or whatever it was, turns out not to be true at all. You're actually learning your whole life. And your brain, your nervous system's first job is to keep you alive. So um, it's very conservative and will, um, this sounds like a contradiction, but stick with the last thing that kept you alive. So you develop pain of some kind. You, you step off a curb, you sprain your ankle, you sit so long that you get used to sitting and your lower back starts hurting when you stand for long periods of time. So you develop pain like that. And so uh, immediately you need to learn something new related to that pain because who knows, it might cause you to die. I mean, you know, in the very simple uh, way that this functions. And uh, so you find a way of moving that is as manageable as possible. And that becomes your new way of moving. And that always means reducing your access to your use of all that you're capable of, right? So actually, let me introduce a concept here that probably would have been good two minutes ago, which is <laughs> the self-image, right? So we have a, a map of our bodies, ourselves, in our brain. It's called the homunculus or a sensory motor map. And 
that's we use it like you use a map. Uh, it tells us what we've got and how we can use it. And it's made the way all maps are made through exploration. And that's a big part of what you're doing, you know, as a baby is you're building that map. And the process of learning to move and interact with the environment and the process of building your map of yourself are the same process. It's just one activity that you engage in and all of the things that you explore and you do tell you about yourself and they tell you about the environment at the same time and how you can move and access that environment and fulfill your intentions. And so you're always revising that map based on the experiences that you have in your life and the additional learning that you do around um, activities that become important, like sitting in a bad desk chair without wiggling too much in school, for instance, or horseback riding or... Um, you know, any activity, any skilled activity that you do, or any just repetitive activity. And, and so our self image is always being revised and updated based on those experiences. And, you know, once, once we get into school, and we start getting in habits and routines, and we stop this rich, what is supposed to be a rich period of very diverse physical play in childhood, then very often, really, the changes that happen to our self-image, um, shrink it or remove information rather than adding information. And that's how we get buggered up. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to yeah. let you ask a question, but I, I, you know, for people who don't know Feldenkrais, it, it's very odd. Yes. <laughs> and it's hard odd. to explain, which I hear, you know, like in your explanations. It's just, it's hard to explain. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's a very rigorous method. It takes four years to learn to become a Feldenkrais practitioner. And even then, you know, it's like having graduated from medical school, you are so not ready to go out and practice. <laughs> and uh, we keep learning our whole lives. So, but to the student, it can feel very amorphous. And um, not goal-directed, especially like as an athlete in a way that you're used to being goal-directed, right? This is my learning objective, and I'm going to pursue it. And once I get it, I'm going to drill it. And that's going to be my focus until I master it. But um, just unfortunately, you can't, you, can, you can't really enrich your map of yourself. You can't really enrich your self-image with that sort of attitude. You set out with a question and an intention. And then, then you have discovery and discovery like fundamentally means you encounter stuff that you didn't even know was possible. Like you didn't even have a category for it. Right. And that can um, leave you feeling very at sea because you are, <laughs> because you are at sea. But um, you know, there's a, there's a, captain of the ship and and that's me <laughs> if you're doing my lessons and it's my job to structure things um to help you come to conclusions that are going to make a huge and really tangible difference in your life you know i, I want to chime in for a second because i have experienced the I guess the mystery of it, Elizabeth and I have talked about this quite a bit of just like the mystery of Feldenkrais, because it does feel like this sort of, like you say, like you're kind of lost at sea and like, what's going on? And then you get up and you're like, wow, I do feel different. Like, what the heck is happening? And one of the things I really have absorbed, because I've done a number of your lessons now over many years and kind of start and stop and 
take some stuff with me, you know, every single time I go out, but then not do a lesson for a very long time. And so I've had a little experience. I wouldn't say by any means am I an expert at doing these lessons. But one of the things that make that just makes sense to me is that you break down everything to such these micro, micro movements that it does, it is this moment that you can really, really, really check in with your body both consciously and then I know there's other stuff going on in the background that uh, like in your subconscious and all these other things happening. But even from a conscious mind perspective or even a paying attention perspective, it makes sense to me because I'm like, I never slow down this much and really tune in to how I move because they're habits. Right. So does that make some sense? Yeah. And actually there are kind of two, there are two things in there. There's the issue of habits and habits are important. We need habits, frankly, um, because if we had to consciously think about every move we made, it would like, we just don't have the bandwidth for that. And so, uh, you know, it's a habit, how you put your shoes on. It's a habit, how you lift a spoon to your mouth. It's so you can do it while watching TV if you want. Right. And so you need habits, but they need to be the appropriate habits for the situation. And they need to be, you know, although we never arrive at perfect, we're always just getting better because there's no limit to how good we could be. You know, once once you've got a basically functional way of lifting a spoon to your lips, you then you don't need to get it more perfect. <laughs> you know, what you need is to get it more versatile and responsive so that if you're sitting in a Barca lounger, you can get, still get the spoon to your lips, even though your whole body's curled and you're watching the TV. So that if you're in a boat and the waves are, are rolling, you can still get the spoon to your lips. Hopefully there's still soup in it at that point, <laughs> you know? And so what you need is an ability to adapt and respond to a wide variety of contexts. And very often that's, you know, that's where it falls apart for people. There, there are plenty of us uh, in just the basic running gait, like, you know, the spoon is not quite making it to the mouth. So we need to sort that out first. But once that's sorted, like that's just, and many runners think that's like, that's the whole thing, but that's not. That's just step number one on a long and beautiful road to mastery, which is that um, versatility. So that's the habits thing. And, and your habits are informed by self-image, which has probably been revised by the ankle sprain you had and the way you twisted your knee in playing soccer in high school and the ski accident you had or whatever. So that's all baked into your habits too. So they need to, that needs to be improved, but we're not going to stop you from having habits. (laughs) We're just going to slow things down enough so that you can actually see what your habits are made of and whether they're working for you. And um, then the other thing in what you said in is this slowing down and doing small movements business is incredibly important. And it's, it's why I don't have people run and I tell them how to run or even give Feldenkrais lessons in running, because you are only able to perceive a change in a stimulus or sensation of about a 40th the size of that sensation. So the piano and fly. So if you were holding a piano somehow (laughs) and a fly landed on it, you wouldn't be able to feel a difference in weight. But if you're holding a feather and a fly landed on it, you would be able to feel the additional weight of the fly. 
The flyaway is the same in either case. It's the background sensation that's different. So in Feldenkrais lessons, we bring that background sensation very low. Mostly you're lying down. You're doing very small movements so that you can feel quite small changes in sensation based on how you're moving uh, that are very important things. You can feel moving your arm a millimeter or two farther uh, down towards your knees is less comfortable for your back than moving it a millimeter or two farther up. We'd never be able to feel a difference like that in running, but it's a fundamental discovery about your vertebrae. <laughs> and once you know that about your vertebrae, vertebrae, then when you take that into running, uh, you'll run differently. And to clarify, the way I understand it is what you mean by you'll you'll take that out and run differently is like there's something going on in your brain and in your nervous system that is taking that information and it will help you create new habits. Is that yeah. a fair assessment? Yeah. Or, you know, just this week, I, I had a breakthrough and, I, and realized I need to use not only the word self-image, sensory motor map and homunculus, um, but also the phrase emergent property. So the lessons, mostly, they teach you they, or they help you discover something about yourself, not something about running. And then how you run after doing that lesson with that new information about yourself is an emergent property of the lesson. It doesn't repeat. People are always trying to take movements from the lessons and sort of make them happen in running too. And because the lessons don't look like running, that's it never fully works and um, it can go really awry. But that's also, it's not a running lesson. It's a you lesson. And that information will change how you respond to the environment. Again, respond to the stimuli that you receive and in, in, in a more functional way so that you're so that you can eat the soup in a barca lounger or on a boat. So can you talk more about what's happening between the lesson where you're teaching yourself or you're discovering stuff and then you go out and run and, you know, like what of those like, how does the translation happen? And I don't, I'm not exactly sure how to ask this because I don't want to say like, how long does it last? But sort right. of like, when does it hold? Like, how do you help it to hold? Or like, what's happening in terms of making it something that sticks with you rather than lasts for the run the morning after the lesson? Right. Yeah. It, you you could say, how long does it last? Because lots of people, <laughs> lots of people ask that very question. And it's a really valid question. If you're going to invest the time to do these lessons, you got to know that it's going to make a difference, not just tomorrow, um, but long term. Uh, and the answer is it varies. Um, we all have things that are easy for us to learn, that we just didn't know it. And once we encounter that information, we're like, Oh, and the world is different forever after, right? And then we also all have those lessons and, you know, Feldenkrais lessons or life lessons, whatever, that we just need to learn over and over again. And, uh, and you know, and they do add up, but they're harder things for us to learn for whatever reason, because of the ways that our bodies developed, because of the incredible volume of life experience that is incompatible with this new discovery. Um, you know, 
horseback riding has been on my mind lately because it's an, been an issue for a couple of clients because it's life and it's like literally life and death to keep your heels down in the stirrups in a lot of situations. But um, if that habit is horrible for running, you got to let your heel come off the ground in order to get into the air. And if you don't, um, if you end up going sideways off your foot one direction or another, you ha- it can have a world of problems. And yet, if you were a serious horseback rider for years and years growing up, that is not, and again, it was actually, it affected whether you landed on your head or not. Um, then that is going to be a really, that's going to require a lot of discovery and reinforcement so that when, so you get to a point that when you feel a saddle underneath you and a horse moving, you keep your heels down without having to think about it. But when you feel the road beneath your feet and yourself performing a running action, your heels come up and you don't need to think about it. You can, you're, you have a habit that's related to the stimulus and is responsive like that. So so it depends, but I have, you know, I've been doing this work with runners. Let's see. I was fully certified. <laughs> what is it? Two to 20, uh, 21 years. Okay. There we go. It'll be 21 years in the summer that I've been doing this work with runners. And obviously a huge focus for me has been doing everything I can to make it, to make the lessons stick. To, to, to help you be able to perceive what's different about your running, like what what was the significance of that lesson for your running and not have it be so much of a mystery, but like at the end, once you've run after the lesson, you kind of know what you've learned. It's clear to you how you feel different and how it's working better and to make it last. And so one of the really important ways to do that is to have a number of opportunities to come at the same material different ways. It's the opposite again of the um, drilling and practicing perfection, (laughs) you know, model that um, I think pretty much everybody else uses, Um, but where you're not a machine and we're not trying to um, turn you into one. (laughs) You're a living being and we're trying to make a rich and beautiful map that um, is incredibly responsive and adaptable. And so what you need is a really varied learning experience. And the more times you come at material from different directions in different ways, the more you master it. And so I build that into my lessons and programs. And, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to improve that. But I think I've got a structure now at the 21 year mark that works pretty well. But to me, so what, is, what have your experiences with that been? So right this minute, I don't have any discomfort in the back of my knees. However, you know, I can be pretty certain that soon that that difficulty will happen again. Mm-hmm. And I haven't figured out, you know, like what actually is making that start again or stop again. Yeah. Right. Right. And and that's a difficulty that you came into my programs with. Absolutely. And hadn't been, and it was just always with you. I'm not going to say always. But. Right. Okay. So, okay. Let me not put words in your mouth. So, yes. um, is it different now than it was before? Well, now it comes and goes, which, yes, is different for sure. Okay. Good. Yeah. So, that's also, I mean, it's, it's like annoying. And I love it when my work is like waving a magic wand, a problem goes away. It goes away to the extent that you forget you ever had it, um, which 
happens a lot with the Feldenkrais method. And it's actually one of the things that hinders our success. Because if you don't even realize, <laughs> if you don't even remember you had a problem, then you can't go around raving to everybody about how Feldenkrais cured your, cured your whatever. But again, you know, if, if a problem is longstanding and, and the longer you've had it, the more your self-image has changed, the more habits you have related to it, the more learning you need to do to completely stop having that problem. And part of that process of coming at the new things you needed to learn, the new material, a bunch of different ways is that you're going to be traveling the road between having the problem and not having the problem, having the problem and not having the problem a few times, maybe frequently until you, you know, like some of the learning's conscious, but most of it's not conscious, but until you can really feel how to not have the problem, basically, no matter what happens to you. And uh, so I don't, I don't consider it, you know, like I, I used to get stressed about people's problems reappearing after being gone for a while. But now I always feel like, well, good, because you haven't yet fully mastered uh, a whole palette of movement options, none of which lead to that problem. And so it crops up again. Okay, we know we have more work to do. And it probably does not involve repetition. It probably involves, um, there's another piece to the puzzle here that we need to find. Well, I related to your horseback riding example because I do a lot of different kinds of sports. And one of them is cycling, which is on your list of don't do when you're doing your program. And so I've been wondering if, you know, I haven't you know, I've sort of mastered what the lessons are teaching me, but as soon as I go back to another sport, I unlearn it. And so that's what's causing the problem. Or that's what that's that's a, a hypothesis I've come up with. Yeah, I don't think you unlearn it. I just think that your habits related to that sport, you know, which are which are very strong, um, especially for cycling, because you did, you know, have done a lot of it. And because because the movement is very hard to go from cycling to running, you know, and that obviously makes triathlon a particularly difficult sport. It's also totally possible. That's why triathlon is a sport. But to go back and forth, you know, it's one thing if you were a serious horseback rider as a kid and you haven't done it in 10 years, but you still have those habits. It's another thing if you're still riding. Right. And, and those habits, which are strong and, and, you know, connected all throughout your brain get reactivated and then you have to find your way out again to some totally new way of moving that you haven't fully mastered yet. Um, and so you get to practice that a lot. And you may need you you may need to figure out. So you certainly need to keep learning, right? There are certainly more pieces to the puzzle that need to be filled in rather than just repeating old material. But you also probably need some sort of warm up activity. Uh, like a habit triggering activity or new head that, that activates the new stuff that you learned about coordinating yourself for running that is different from how you coordinate yourself for cycling. Um, you probably need to, to find something that really works for you that you do before you run every time. That's and you may need to do that for a couple of years, but you will not always need to do that. Um, you just, the like the running stuff you're learning, it needs tons of reinforcement. It needs enrichment, but it also needs reinforcement because it just gets drowned out by the cycling habits. No surprise. 
And Jay, it's interesting that you say that about having some sort of warm up routine to sort of, I don't know if if it's to sort of trigger your body into realizing like now we're doing the running thing and we're not doing the cycling thing or the horseback riding thing or whatever it might be. Um, Because even though I find that when I return to your lessons, I'm always learning like it's kind of the onion thing where I constantly feel like I'm getting this new layer of awareness. So to me, it feels like something I could return to for the rest of my life. But in general, I don't have a ton of pain when I run, but that's not always true. And I have actually started over the last year or so, I do like drills and warmups before I really get going in my running. And just like a lot of dynamic movements and things like that. And I do find that I much more easily get to that point where my running is has less pain and less kind of that achiness. And and so I wonder if I've sort of like just figured out how to do that without being told of just like, this is my way of telling my body we're going to do this thing. And the one thing I'll add too is something that you talk a lot about is that, you know, running should feel good and yeah. it should feel pain-free. So how do we get there? And and I lean on that a lot. And in as much as it's not like I can like flip a switch and say like, I'm not going to have pain today. It is something I aspire to. And I think there's something in that. Like I, like I believe that there is a way that I can run that feels fluid and free and joyful. And I think even just having that belief helps, helps me with your lessons. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I agree. Um, and the, the, the fundamental thing here is, you know, so is running's a sport. It requires effort. Um, you know, if you're training, you're pushing yourself and these things may bring a certain kind of pain, but the, the movement itself should not be inherently painful. The movement itself is a fundamental human gait and it should feel good. And having it feel better is always a sign that it's nearly always a sign (laughs) that you are moving more in the direction of how your body actually works. Like using your body, how it actually works is always the least work and the most fun and feels the best. And so, yes, completely. (laughs) You could, I mean, here in this earthly world, nothing is ever completely free from problems. Um, you will occasionally have a glitch or a run that feels like crap or, you know, <laughs> have an accident, whatever, you know, like we do step off a curb or, or um, some th- things like that. But, but on average, <laughs> you're, you'll feel great. Would you say yeah. that's true at whatever pace, like, you know, you're doing your 13 minute miles or you're doing your five minute miles? Um, yes. I mean, you know, assuming that the thing you've done all the other things that need to happen in order for, say, a faster pace to for your body to be ready for a faster pace, you're warmed up, etc. Yeah, cool. Because and and one of the reasons for that is, you know, to run faster is to run differently, and so you know, to like I love this the phrase to to find a gear like you find your different gears when you know how to find that five minute pace gear, you know, and you're recovered from your last workout and appropriately warmed up and um, ready for it, then yeah, it should feel awesome to to flip into that gear. Can we clarify that a little bit though, Jay? Because yeah. 
like I, I feel like that's like, oh, all of us should be able to go out and run five minute miles. I mean, so I would <laughs> oh, say no, that no, there's no. a little more. <laughs> like I, it just started stopping a little because I, like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, wow, I, I, I'm gonna go out and run a five minute mile today. Then <laughs> that'd be awesome. Okay, relative, relative. Maybe, maybe we'll take. Could we maybe take the time frame, uh, like, and talk maybe just a little bit about faster and slower running because one of the things you brought up, which I've always thought was really interesting about your teachings too, is that to run faster is to run differently. And and I'll add here that, you know, I, I read a lot about Camille Heron. I've talked to her many times. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she's talked about is the difficulty of learning to run slower, which yeah. she has to do for these longer events. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? You know, obviously we know that running five minute miles or whatever like faster pace that somebody's doing isn't easy. So can can we talk about, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was this idea of effortful, because I think, I suspect that's where you're going when you say, yeah, you should be able to, to do that and it should feel great. Because I <laughs> uh, resonate a lot with when you say like, it, running should not feel effortful, like you're, like you're doing more. Um, so it's, am I getting to more of, of, Kind of where yeah. you're with that. Okay. So, so uh, again, there's a lot in there, but first, let me say, um, yeah. actually, first, um, if your question to me involves a number, um, I'm not going to notice it. So, yes, right. of course. <laughs> <laughs> All the whole part of my brain, this is, you know, neuroplasticity in action. Like, <laughs> I, I can't. I can't do numbers anymore. I can only do spatial relations. Like all that whole part of my brain got repurposed. But every, you know, each person has their range of speeds, right? What's reasonable for them. And for Elliot Kipchoge, and that's different than for Usain Bolt, then is like none of them is where I'm at. Um, but I have my version of that speed, right? Yeah. And the yeah. number on it may be different, but relative to my range, it's like really fast running, right? So, in, and my range of really slow running goes phenomenally low. <laughs> I, I once actually ran a, an 18 minute mile. <laughs> and that's slower than my walking speed. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> I'm actually, I was very proud of that accomplishment. And so this gets to your Camille Heron question. This, actually running slower is a higher skill. Because, and yeah, because running is elastically driven, and so that lends itself to speed. Uh, because, um, in a way that I still don't, I don't completely understand the physics of it. But everybody knows when they run faster, their form is basically better. Yes, um, you know, up to a point, up until you fall apart. But momentum takes care of a lot of stuff, and not completely because. Um, because the muscle initiation may still be wrong and momentum kind of pulls everything into proper relationship but the, the active muscle activation, how you're dealing with the forces involved in that speed may still be dysfunctional so that you pay for it later. Um, not with like general fatigue from having run fast, but from like specifically you, your quads are dead, your knees hurt, your feet hurt, you know, something hurts. So momentum doesn't just like solve your problems very often. It just hides your problems. But when you, when you get down to the very low speeds, you, you don't even have that assistance. 
And it is a higher skill. It, you can run kind of okay if you only sort of know how to run <laughs> or if you only sort of know enough about yourself to perform running. But you cannot run slowly without a lot of, a lot of knowledge. So I, I, I mean, I see this in my students like always. So I, I offer a six week online running camp. I call it, you know, it's an online course and people get faster from the first lesson and they get faster sometimes before their pain goes away, since it was usually some kind of pain that brought them into the program because from the very first lesson, they are, you know, uh, revising those movement habits that are up incompatible with running so that they're basically just getting out of their body's way. They're stopping doing the doing things that mess up their running and letting their body just work the right way. And that's just faster. And um, without effort, you know, it's the kind of look at your watch after the run and go, wow, it didn't, it didn't feel that fast uh, kind of speed. And still at higher speeds, even if you've gotten there just by kind of getting out of your own way and stopping doing work that was slowing you down, you still are dealing with higher forces in your body, um, especially at mid stance, which is when your muscles do the most work. So this moment when you've completed landing on a foot and you haven't started taking off again, when you're right over your foot, your knee is its most bent, your head is at its lowest level, you're most compressed. Like that's when our muscles do their peak work in the whole running stride. And if you're running faster, you're probably doing that more times per second. And you're, you've got more force in landing and more force that you're handling. And those muscles have to work a bit harder. And so people can get into this situation where they're running faster than is appropriate for their fitness, but they can't figure out how to slow down without having their issues come back, their knee pain or whatever. And so then we need kind of second phase learning, which is not only how to get out of your own way, but how is this movement performed and what what are the different gears? What are the different alterations in gait? And, you know, especially for those super slow speeds, like how do you still manage to be not behind your feet, not sitting back and uh, still taking off into the air and running instead of walking while having just like a really long, relaxed ground contact time and a, a small leg action that lets you run really, really slowly. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Jay, you mentioned the camp. Can you talk about how you like to most work with athletes? Ah, this is a burning issue in my life right now, <laughs> actually. So 
You know, okay. So first, I like it all. Like, I, I love that I have an online program that has been honed through the whole 21 years, like this lesson sequence and all of the processes built in the 21 years that I've been working with runners. It's tested. It's a big net kind of however, whatever your problem is or however you come into this camp running, it's going to catch you and usher you, you know, sort of herd you towards towards uh, a balanced form. And that lets me help a lot of people to that, you know, first, it's through that first mile or through that first step of like, okay, now we are functionally getting the soup spoon to the mouth. And uh, so that's really great. And then just answering questions and providing assistance. And every once in a while I get a brainstorm for something that could make the camp even better. And I add it, like, I love having that available. And then um, I love this sort of semi-self-directed advanced program that I have because because it's full of people who, who are just there. They've gotten so excited about learning and growing this way. And half the time when they ask them, ask me a question, they're figuring out the answer as they go. And I just love seeing that happen. And, um, and I love the deep questions that they're asking. I love coaching online. I finally feel like I got good at it. <laughs> I've been doing it since uh, 2016. Uh, when we made yet another international move and I had to, and so I had a business in New York city, a studio. I worked only in person with runners for a decade and I taught workshops and did, you know, periodically, but it was really, it was one-to-one work. And um, if I hadn't done that, I couldn't now be doing all these other things. Um, and then we moved overseas to Scotland and I did the same thing, but I did start teaching a little bit online. I started what would become the online camp. And then we moved to Germany. And at that point I had built and left two in-person practices. And I just didn't have it in me to do it a third time, especially knowing we weren't going to be in Germany long-term or feeling it in my bones, which turned out to be true. And so I just took everything online. And that was the point at which I started doing one-to-one work online. And it's, everybody thinks that video shows the truth, but it, it, it doesn't, it hides a lot more than it shows. And learning how to work well with video and um, to, to really, to figure out, you know, what's going on in the self-image, what's going on in the movement habits, like what, not what is the problem with the, it's so easy to figure out the problem with the person's running. It's very hard to figure out why they're doing that and what they need to learn that would change everything. And then to do that virtually using video is way, way harder still. <laughs> but um, I've just slowly been getting better at it. I do a lot of it. Um, it's how I've done all my work with elite athletes and it does work very well. And I've got, and I've just, just like the last few months, I've been really digging it. Like it finally, it's not just like what I do for practical reasons, but like, I really like working with runners online. So, but I am dying to get back in person with people at this point. And I started doing that in, at this, in 2019 and then the pandemic hit. And so, um, and then I couldn't just resume after because the office I was working in didn't even exist anymore at that point. And there wasn't any demand either. Um, And then we moved again. And and here I am in Salt Lake City, which I'm loving. 
And I'm just really excited to find an office and start um, being able to, to be with runners in real time while they're running, to be able to put my hands on them. It gives me so much more information about why they're doing what they do. And um, I just really miss being in person with people. So you've probably picked up at this point that there's really no question you can ask me that would elicit a short answer. <laughs> we, we like that. Yeah, exactly. As interviewers, that's perfect. <laughs> that works. So kind of along those same lines, like uh, talking about your teaching practice, I am sort of curious because I found these lessons difficult the first time I did them. Like, I was just like, I don't get this. Like I was trying really hard to get, do it right. I wanted to do all the lessons right. And then I realized that I kind of just need to relax, but I didn't know how to do that anyway. Uh, this is all to say, I am sure that you have seen in your practice that some people tend to get it and some people tend to struggle. And I'm wondering if there are certain approaches that you've noticed with your students that make it easier for them to absorb the lessons and sort of get into the mode of Feldenkrais because it really is quite different. Um, and if there are other people who just, it's like, they just like, I don't get it. And they just have a hard time with it. Yeah. So yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, in general, this stuff's hard for runners. <laughs> <laughs> Working with runners seemed like such a good idea when I was a young practitioner, because it was what I was learning about myself. It was what I was on fire about. Um, but my background is as a dancer. And so the idea that you would in that your primary activity as an athlete, putting dancers in that category would be to um, would be focused on skill was just, it was just my assumption that that was true for all athletes, including runners. And by the time I realized that was so not true for runners, I was already two years in and it was doomed basically. Um, and then thank God Born to Run came out and, and changed things enormously for me and for runners. I mean, what a gift that you can learn and that in fact learning and improving your movement should be part of what you do as a runner. You know, and, and the master's runners that I see who are really successful, that's their mindset. Like that's what it takes to have longevity and performance into the later decades of life. So it is definitely, I mean, running is a skill sport, but still, you know, like a lot of runners come to it as kind of feeling like they are not coordinated enough to do other sports, um, but they know, but they're, but they're good at putting in effort. And so those are the runners who most need this work but probably find it most challenging. They're also like people's nervous systems are just different. And some people are like fast, tight systems. And some people are slow, open systems. And I'm the slow, open type. I, I'm making up those categories. But, you know, some people are super efficient, right, in their own lives. Like they don't get distracted by a lot of details. They know I, I wake up, I pull my clothes on, I brush my teeth, boom, I'm out the door. It's 15 minutes. Like that kind of person is probably going to struggle more with Feldenkrais lessons because for me, I wake up and it's a minefield between my bed and the door. Like there's so much to <laughs> notice and pay attention to. <laughs> and even just brushing my teeth becomes this highly complicated activity. So I'm, you know, <laughs> and so part of that is like, a, a brilliant anatomy teacher I once had said that the, one of the brain's 
most important jobs is keeping as much as possible subconscious because that because the more stuff that can be taken care of kind of behind the curtain the freer you are out in front of the curtain to act and we need that freedom um the only problem is if the stuff behind the curtain is not being performed well which is like the whole thing that we're dealing with here right but so people have that that people's curtains are hung in different places <laughs> um and for some people there's a, most of the the space behind the curtain is huge and the space in the front is very small and vice versa. Um, for me, way, like, way more stuff is conscious for me. My, my brain is not very good at keeping things unconscious. And that's my, that's my superpower as far as doing this work goes because I've noticed things that other people just haven't noticed, although they were in plain sight all along. But for people who are the other way, <laughs> that a lot is unconscious, <laughs> it, it can be um, more challenging. And then I think also, you know, there's this new book that's come out about attention, modern attention, human attention span, I think is now seven seconds. And that's, that's new. It was, it didn't used to be like that. This Gloria Mark, I think is her name. And if I'm remembering again, this involves numbers. So it's a little dicey whether I get it right. But um, when she started studying attention, I believe in the eighties, it was two minutes and some seconds, but we're now wow. down to seven wow. seconds. And so, <laughs> and, you know, and I do get a lot of complaints about the lessons are so slow. The lessons are so long. And, you know, part of me wants to say, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> you need this so badly. Oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. Really? Like, you're a human. You know, this is your opportunity, not even to move better, but to also reclaim some of your human capacity to have sustained attention. Um, and that's going to be uncomfortable, but you're an athlete. You signed up for that. <laughs> it's just not a kind of discomfort that you're familiar with. So, I mean, you didn't you didn't ask the question in that way, Sheree. I'm not talking about you. No, but... no. Oh, that's... <laughs> hey, no, I, there are days. There are many days. That is me. So suck it up. <laughs> suck it up, me. <laughs> but also, I mean, there are lots of rests built into the lessons, right? Yeah. And yeah. even if, like, if you're, if you're a go, go, go kind of person and you want to get going and you don't want to, then even that can be a little bit irritating. But, like, they're really there so you can refresh your attention. And that's one of the reasons that you're supposed to take rests, even if I haven't said to rest yet, but you just feel like you're just not with it anymore. Take, take, take a moment, take 10 seconds, take, you know, chill, let clear your mind, have a daydream and then come back. One of my first take impressions of doing these lessons actually was that they were exhausting. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I joke around with Cherie that, you know, it's rolling around on the floor and it seems like nothing. And I'm exhausted. I know now that I can't have a lot of stress going on in my week if I'm going to be doing a bunch of Feldenkrais lessons. I mean, it's kind of astounding. Yeah, because this is is work. Is actually it is probably, and this is what you know where I started with the babies, and and I, I always question afterwards whether I should have started off a conversation with babies because that it, because it just seems so woo and so sweet <laughs> but I mean it when I say that work <laughs> that they that we all did that babies are doing especially in that first year that second year like 
it's massive. I really wonder if we ever work as hard again. It's just, you know, it's just, it's the right work. It's the perfect moment. They have such a drive to do it, you know, like that's no negative connotations to the word work, but all, and all of this learning, all of this creating new connections in your brain, it takes a tremendous amount of resources. Uh, and, and um, you may have to shut down other things in order to do that. You may need to sleep more um, so that you can really make those connections. You may stop paying attention to things you normally pay attention to. I mean, when I am in person with somebody giving a lesson, and I, I, do, I, I do a touch-guided lesson, it's called Functional Integration in the Feldenkrais Method, where I'm using my hands to move their bodies and help them feel um, the things that you otherwise would be having to discover yourself through the verbal instructions I give. Um, people often sort of drift off into something that kind of looks like sleep, but it's really not normal to be asleep while somebody's moving your body. And so it's not really, there's a part of your brain that is paying such attention that you've shut everything else down. Oh, wow. Well, That's and cool. I've certainly noticed that if at all other thoughts creep in, while I'm in the middle of a Feldenkrais lesson, it just doesn't work. Or, or on the flip side, I really notice that I haven't had any thoughts slip in while I'm doing them. Like I, it, like I, I find them to be so relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, they are very relaxing. Yeah. They're yeah. very relaxing. And in fact, there's even a practitioner named Michael Krugman who created a method to help in people with insomnia due to stress. Yeah. Um, just using the characteristics of Feldenkrais lessons that make that are so relaxing. Um, so that's called the Sounder Sleep System. It's it, Michael Krugman has passed away, but um, he left there a lot. I was in his first class of teachers. I don't do that work anymore because focusing is where it's at. But um, there are a lot of people out there doing that work. So, but uh, yeah, you know, and, and what I would say about this is depends on what kinds of other thoughts we're talking about. Because yeah. my mind is wandering often kind of all over the place. And when I do a lesson, um, not when I prepare a new lesson for my advanced class, then, you know, I'm really engaged in a struggle with, <laughs> with the material. But when I do a recorded lesson or, you know, I'm in some other teacher's hands, my mind wanders, my thoughts drift. I, I remember things... I uh, think about stories, I make associations. And that's because that's, that's all part of the lesson. Like if, you, if the thoughts you're having are like your to-do list, then that's right. not part of the lesson. But right. yeah, <laughs> that's just you being impatient. Take a moment to take a rest or get up and make a to-do list so you can lie, you get that off your plate and you can lie back down and focus on the rest of the lesson. But, um, but the other stuff that comes in, that's just all – because it's all connected yeah. uh, in your brain. Like what a brain exists to organize movement and every other function it performs is built on top of that and is connected to that. So when you deal with how you organize your movement, it affects every part of you as a person. And the thoughts and feelings that wander in during a lesson are, are really part of the lesson. And that could be a whole other conversation. So I was just going to say, oh my goodness, that you like slipped right through that comment about the, the brain being only for move, moving your body or foremost for moving the body. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's true 
it's true in the whole world. Like every creature that locomotes, that has self-directed movement, has a brain. And no creature that doesn't locomote, um, you know, has a brain. Like a tree doesn't have a brain because it's got roots in the ground. The wind may move its branches, but it's not locomoting. Um, and there is a creature called a sea squirt that has two life phases. In the first life phase, it's an animal that swims around and then, um, and I think mates, and then it um, turns into a, a plant. It oh. Puts roots into the seafloor or whatever. And then at that point, it digests its brain. Um, because brains are very metabolically expensive. And so you, you can't really afford to have one unless you must. That's amazing. Wow, we are really ending this on a high note. <laughs> so, well, I, there is one other burning question that I am going to ask, because uh, Elizabeth and I have talked about this too, Is uh, and we don't have a good answer. So is there any other way to sort of get to forming new habits in this way other than Feldenkrais? Well, um, the basic... Um... The basic mechanisms in Felden, in the Feldenkrais method, that's how you, I mean, well, okay. Let's make a distinction between forming new habits and learning new ways of moving and functioning. Because you can make a habit. There's all kinds of science on there, out there on how to make habits and like, I don't know, pick up tiny habits or atomic habits or, you know, just make sure you do the same thing every day for 30 days or what, you know. Right, like, right whatever, like drill, you know, you can do that, but we want something better. Again, we want that, we want the right action. We want the most, um, the best organized action that, uh, we want an organized action that meets your needs and fulfills your intention, um, in interaction with the environment. Right. So if you want that, which is what we're really talking about when we're talking about um, being able to be the runner that you dream of being and know in your heart you can be, then you cannot get around the fundamental requirements um, that, you know, the fundamental um, characteristics of Feldenkrais lessons. It doesn't have to be called Feldenkrais. It doesn't have to look, you know, quite like Feldenkrais, I guess. That said, I'm not aware of any other method out there that really does that other than Feldenkrais. Um, because you have to be able to feel what you're doing. There has to be feedback loops built in. There has to be contrast. There has to be um, test moves. There has to be, you know, rests. There has to. So then it starts looking like a Feldenkrais lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I've never experienced anything like it. And I find it, yeah, very, very powerful and long lasting. And then it's also the frustration of like, I always know that I could be a little bit better <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean uh feldenkrais said there's no limit to our ability to improve so you've got a life of frustration ahead of you sheree <laughs> yeah, or, you know maybe i should maybe i should look at it differently and, uh, and say yeah it. like maybe maybe not frustration but uh excitement about how much better i could continue to be <laughs> which is which is actually more of the truth of it uh, quite honestly, is that's one of the things, you know, you touched on this briefly, and I'll, I'll just say this briefly, that, you know, now that I'm in my 50s, it's given me a lot of time to think about, like, what does it mean to be a better athlete as I get older? And this is certainly a way that I have found to be a better athlete. And it, And really, my goal has been to run 
pain-free because I went through a long period of time where that wasn't the case. And and I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually a, a possible thing that I can feel good running, however my speed might change, whatever, but I can always feel good running for the rest of my life. Like that's my goal, mm-hmm. you know? It's, so. it's a great goal. And I would <laughs> say ultimately is the most is the goal most people come to me with. There there might be, you know, a more immediate goal of qualifying for Boston or, you know, an ultra marathon on the calendar or whatever. But um, the big goal is I just love this and I think I ought to be able to do it pain-free and I don't want there to be a, a point in my life where I have to stop. You know, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I have, I have so many clients and students who feel better in their 50s or their 60s or their 70s or their 80s than they remember feeling in their 40s. Yeah. Because it's not just running, right? Like you don't just like, oh, I feel great running, but I feel really awful the rest of the time. It doesn't work. Right, 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 right. I would also add it just sort of, you know, can reframe our thinking about, for example, bad knees. Like, you know, if I ever tell anybody that I have bad knees, you know, the first thing that comes up is, oh, have you thought about getting a knee replacement? And it's like, no, this is what, you know, like there are other ways of tackling this kind of thing. And and the the cause is not necessarily something that's going to be cleared up by knee replacement. Right, right. Because replace your knee, you'll still keep using it the same way you use the old one. Right. <laughs> Sooner or later, there's going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. The surgeries have gotten better, but, you know... So much pain is not even is not even because of um, any kind of problem with the hardware, right? Even though there are problems with the hardware as you get older, like everybody over a certain age has osteoarthritis. So you develop pain somewhere, you get an MRI, it shows osteoarthritis, then, you know, cause and effect is assumed. But the fact is, you don't have to have pain if you have osteoarthritis. They're, they're separate issues. And there's plenty of research that shows that. And, you know, the same is true for meniscus. The same is true for so many things. Um, and, you know, in the, new, in the science of pain and the amazing developments in that, you know, show that this is true, that pain is not in a body part. Pain is in your brain and it's an interpretation of the situation. And, um, and you know, learning and moving differently can reverse an amazing amount of pain, regardless of the condition of your body. Wow. If you have a broken leg, you're going to need to get that to, you know, like, <laughs> but other than that. Right. I think that's a great place to end. I do too. I also think it's a great place to say, like, maybe we have to have you back, Jay. I would that. love that. Because <laughs> yeah. well, Elizabeth, yeah, Elizabeth still is dealing with this, and I know that she's committed to running pain-free and yes. and fixing it. Yeah. But that's an interesting topic. So, but we will leave that for another time. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jay. This oh, has been great. A pleasure. Truly a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is fantastic. Well, what a pleasure that was. I want to thank Jay Grunke of The Balanced Runner so much and also my friend Elizabeth Emery of Hear Her Sports. Elizabeth and I talk often not only about women in sports but also our own experiences as athletes. And like we talked about, we really enjoy Jay's work. We are a little bit baffled by it. But at least in my case, the more I return to this work, the more I continue to get out of it. 
And I would certainly love to hear if you have ever had any experiences with Feldenkrais or other non-conventional, non-mainstream ways of improving your health and your running. I'm always curious to hear about different approaches. I just know that this has been a key ingredient in keeping me pain-free. And also my running just feels smoother. Yeah, I just I, – I really like it and I've been exploring Jay's work for many, many years and in the beginning, it definitely was – it just felt awkward and weird, and I know I was trying really hard to do it right and make it perfect. But as I've come back to it over the years, I've just sort of let it be what it is and relaxed into it, and and I continue to improve. So yes, these Feldenkrais lessons have become a key ingredient in my running longevity. And I was just thrilled to talk to Jay. I've spoken to her before. We actually featured Jay on the episode with UK Olympian marathon runner Sonia Samuels. Her work with Jay was critical in getting her back to running pain-free. That's a really powerful episode. Sonia talks about her experiences working with Jay, and then we get commentary from Jay about how she was approaching things from her side. So I welcome you to listen to that episode. Of course, I will link to it in the show notes. I will also link to all the other ways that you can get in touch with Jay and how you can keep up with Hear Her Sports. I, of course, highly recommend that you listen and subscribe to Elizabeth's podcast. It's fantastic. We are part of the Evergreen Network. We joined Evergreen along with the Keeping Track podcast hosted by Molly Huddle, Rasheen McGettigan, and Alicia Montano. We are the Women's Sports Network keeping her forward. And yeah, we're really enjoying having the support of the larger network of Evergreen. So subscribe and listen to them as well. And as I wrap things up, I do want to say thank you for listening. You being here is something I always appreciate. We love making these episodes, but of course, the power of them is in you listening and you sharing. I would love it if you would share this episode and the podcast with somebody who you think would enjoy it. I also do not make these episodes by myself. On my crew is Cormac O'Regan. He makes all of the music that you hear in these episodes, and he does that from his studio in Cork, Ireland. April Mariner of Bonfire Collaborative does all of the graphics for the show, the logo, the website, the social media posts, all of it. You can find April at bonfirecollaborative.com. And I am Sheree Louise Turner. I am the host and producer of Women's Running Stories. Thank you so much again for listening. I am coming to you from my home closet studio in Somerville, Massachusetts. And until next time, I wish you healthy, joyful, and good running form strides forward. Women's Running running. Running stories. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, 
all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.